Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion um, based on your questions. Uh, so your questions about digital media production. Um, and our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on today. We're going to have SBX creator Tuomo Coloma uh, is going to be here to talk about how SPX works. It's an open source uh, graphics system that we actually use for this show. So when you see the lower thirds and you see all the questions popping up, that's all SPX. And so Tuomo is going to talk to us a little bit about how that works and uh, and have us understand, you know, the whole, the, how it comes together and what the business model is. How do you have an open source piece of software uh, turn into a business model? And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that in the, uh, in the second hour. So if you've got questions about SPX, um, go ahead and throw those questions in for the second hour. And if you've got questions uh, for the first hour, these can be any questions around digital media production, um, then go ahead and throw those in right now. As producers, uh, if you're watching your producer, uh, you have the opportunity to drive the conversation by asking questions and voting those questions up and down so we know which ones to ask first. Let's go ahead and jump into those questions. Mitch, what do we have? Thank you, Alex. Our first question in from producer Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Paul asked, Comment on this breaking news. Vimeo's new AI script generator will write copy in seconds. Uh, go ahead, John. I, we keep saying that AI is going to be everywhere. This is a good example. They're using OpenAI, um, the OpenAI API, which if you go into GPT and type in, type me a Python script to access the API, it's about seven lines of code, Paul. So no, no magic here. I will say that it is uh, when it comes to script writing and it comes to write, you know, even storytelling, uh, ChatGPT is uh, remarkably good at it. And a lot of it has to set, it depends on how you set it up. So um, we talked about this yesterday and uh, I did get the open that Ken Jordan uses to tell ChatGPT how to do a mid journey. It's pretty good. <laughs> it explains, it really sets up the entire, like, this is who you are, and here are the rules of engagement, and this is all. So there's a lot more than just saying, give me something. ChatGPT will do that out of the gate, but what you can do is really set up the the rules of engagement for that to actually work, and then ChatGPT gets um, pretty good pretty fast. Um, I think that what's interesting is that it isn't as good as a great copywriter or a great story writer but it is a, as good as a lot of stuff <laughs> that we see out there. I had it write a story. I gave me, give me a short story about two snails that fall in love, um, uh, but make it a, a, a Michael Bay's action film. And it, it crossed all those dots <laughs> in a classroom. Uh, and, um, and, and I think that that's the thing that's interesting. And was it, was it going to win an Academy Award? No. Uh, would it have been equal to most of what I see on Saturday morning, you know, cartoons? Hundred percent, and that's the thing that you have to to, to look at. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. I was going to ask Alex if uh, if you give it uh, if you have a dramatic script you want to do if you just give it character outlines at the beginning, like Bill is a uh, reporter for as a mild mannered reporter for a local newspaper, and give it you know basically each character's salient uh, uh, characteristics at the beginning, and then say write a story, you know, write a love story between Bill and Janet. And it will take all of those uh, characteristics that you state to it into account. It does. It, it pretty well, too. Like, it, it, if you set it up with what you want it to do and you give it that that setup information, and that can be paragraphs of information that you're, you're handing it, and then you say go, it will build something against that. And if you don't like it, you just have it build it again. And it writes something Tom's that would have— 
Sorry. Tom's wife just left him. Tom's yeah. wife just left him and his dog. <laughs> exactly. And again, I don't think that it, when I look at it, I go, oh, this isn't as good as something that, you know, would be written by some of the top writers, but there's an awful lot of schlock that gets made um, that, that it would, it would be competitive with. And that's the, that's the thing that a lot of the, that's why the writers are striking right now. Um, so it's, it's going to be interesting. Uh, next question. Next one in from Dave Kaufman in Vancouver, British Columbia. I've switched from taping cables down at live gigs to buying rubber cable covers. Say that a few times. Did the panel have preferred brands of floor cable covers? Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, I don't necessarily. I, I'm still using tape because the rubber cable covers, and I'm trying to say it one time, uh, are hard to throw into a bag or case. You have to have pretty big cases to carry them around because they're usually about four feet long, uh, especially if you get the big ones. This They do make this stuff called uh, you know tunnel tape, which is gaffer, four-inch wide gaffer tape with no adhesive in the middle. So it tapes it down on either side, and you can have it uh, in a variety of Bright colors that point out the fact uh, that there's cables running across the pathway. Don't trip on them, stupid. Uh, so uh, that's easier, and it doesn't leave schmutz on your cables when you peel it up. But it is quite pricey. It's about forty to fifty bucks a roll. Yeah, and uh, you know, I've, I've over the years I've tried to reduce the amount of gaff tape that we go through because oftentimes we'll go into a large event and go through four or five rolls of gaff tape. <laughs> you know, of you know, of putting things down. And especially when you have big open areas, um, we, we, we do a couple different things. Um, for large areas, oftentimes we're running, and especially anything that we think is going to be run over, uh, we use yellow jackets, or I guess they call them guard dogs or yellow jackets, but they're basically channels that can be inside of a, some, uh, basically a speed bump um, that we put in there. The, uh, obviously, we use gaff tape when we, when we need to, and there's nothing else to use. Um, those rubber ones, as Courtney said, is, are hard to you know, carry around, but if you have them at a facility, they work pretty well. You can, they usually have a channel inside that you push through the, through the bottom. And then you, a lot of times we tape them just at the end to keep them where they, were, where they, where they belong. Uh, in carpeted areas, one of the things that we, we learn to use is um, they, they make Velcro channels. And so this is Velcro on either side with a cloth across the, with a, it's really usually nylon across the top. And you can buy 100 feet of this and cut it to length. It's so inexpensive. Oftentimes we cut it to length and just kind of use it the way we're going to use it. But you can pull it all up really quickly and reuse it. And we went at that, you know, a lot of the locations that we went to dropped our use of this um, a great deal. Another thing that we tend to carry around are just rugs. You know, like, you know, these are like doormats and mats. Um, a lot of times we have some of those that will run across something and we'll just throw that rug over it. What's nice about that, especially as we're building, is uh, it doesn't, you know, it, it sometimes it actually looks better <laughs> than a lot of the other things that we've done but it allows us to get back to it. So we might just tag it to keep it where it is, but we can pull it up and get back to all those cables. Um, and getting back to cables is is one of the big reasons I don't like to gaff is because, um, you know, even we had a, uh, a situation on Sunday when we were doing the soccer game and uh, we had changed our mind about what we wanted to do, but things were all gaffed down. And I was like, oh, that's gonna take, <laughs> that's gonna take too long for me to ungaff it and regaff it. And and so we just left it. And so you you, you are kind of, um, painting yourself into a corner sometimes when you, as you gaff those things down. Go ahead, Chris. One of the problem, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the problems I find is that very seldom do people really get trained. And there's actually very smart ways to pull gaff up across the long run. If you screw it up, I make you clean it up yourself. Absolutely. That's always and, a good lesson. <laughs> and I'll tell you, the best <laughs> way the to worst. do it is to start at one end and then 
gently step on the cable as you're pulling it up yeah. so that it doesn't wrap around itself and yeah. encase the cable forever. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Mitchell. I've got a related question. Is there a gaff tape goo remover? Gooby gone. You know, like Goobagon will do it. Like that's the, that's the, that's the, I don't know what's in it. Probably is bad for you, but fire. Uh, fire yeah. That but, stuff smells horrible. But it, it works really well. So, I mean, you know, you can use alcohol as well, um, you know, to, to take it off, rubbing it. A lot of those things are not have, vodka. Uh, like lemon juice in them. Yeah. There's yeah. a certain citrus element to it. Yeah. And so that, that'll, that'll clean them up. And, and that's something we tend to do between shows is sometimes we'll take cables and just kind of clean them up. The other thing we tend to do is leave them out in the sun for a little bit, let them un, loosen up a little bit and then and then wrap them back up again um, after that so it just uh, that, that makes it a lot easier to clean the cables themselves as far as the gaff tape you're right and one of the big things that we try to keep people from doing is little pieces of gaff that when someone starts they always have they'd always do this thing where they put little like one and a half or three three foot pieces of tape along a 10 foot run and you're like no 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 <laughs> Don't, don't do that. Uh, you know, you run the whole, and what we do is I tag it. So what I do is every three feet, I put a, I put something and I pull it tight and I keep them in the order that I want them to be in. So all the cables are in the right order. And then I push them down and I go every three feet. Then you, I take it and I tape, put the tape down on one end and I set the roll. I, I keep on setting the roll down a little bit on the cable. And then I just push my hand across the top. That way it always stays centered on that cable as you as you move move forward but i keep it as one long piece <laughs> as you go through it don't don't break it up into little pieces because that's a lot harder to clean up go ahead courtney i've been trying to find it but i saw a youtube video i stumbled across the other day and it and the guy was demonstrating a liquid uh and he demonstrated gaff he took gaffer tape it. down and stuck it really hard to something and he just squirted this little liquid on it and he just picked up the gaffer tape and lifted straight off didn't have to peel it anything. I thought you were gonna. And when it dries, and when it dries out, it becomes sticky again. It's, I thought, it just I thought you really liquid gaff tape. Just pour it on the cables. Yeah, liquid just, gaff tape. It just it just fuses. You use a roller and you roll. <laughs> they did have a gaff. They had a gaff. Um, there is a roller that that will gaff the tape down. Like you can just put it on the cable and just run it along, and it'll just run gaff behind it. And we bought yes. one. We were really excited, and we never used it. I mean, it was always like this thing. Like it never got packed. It never got anywhere. It it, it was. It looks amazing when you watch it, but no one, I've never actually seen one in the, in the wild. I think all of us bought it, um, you know, thinking that it would be a great solution, but it just, it wasn't that it didn't work. It just, that it just didn't really fit in to what we were doing. Um, next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, I've heard that some, uh, excuse me, large language modules, that's or models like chat GPT can use up to 300 to 400 gigabytes of GPU VRAM. Do you think we'll ever see the democratization of LLMs to the point that they will run on personal home server devices or even the desktop? I'll go ahead, John. You can run some of the, the open source LLMs on local machine, especially if you have a GPU like a 4080 or 4090 and above. They have specialized hardware you can buy in order to run some of the smaller LLMs. The problem is they don't perform as well as what we're used to on BARD and and open AI now. So you're spoiled because you're using the, the best of the best out there. And if you download something locally, it's not going to perform as well, but they're out there. Yeah. It's mostly just being patient. I've tried some on my computer and it's just, you just get used to waiting a long time. And, and I think most of us are used to not waiting a long time anymore. And so that, that is definitely the problem. Uh, next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. There are more than 70 third-party plugins that will be available to chat GPT plus users. 
Plus, access is $20 per month. Do you pay this $20? And will Bing offer plugins like these also? Uh, I don't use any of the plugins. I, I didn't even know there were plugins, but I do pay the $20 a month. <laughs> Go ahead, John. I pay the $20 a month flat fee, and then the plugins, I'm not paying any extra. And, and out of the 70 plugins, I think maybe there's two good ones. What so, are the good ones? What what good? The what Wolfram good one is is good. And what does it make? What what makes it different from just using ChatGPT? What does that plugin do? Well, Wolfram is outstanding in mathematics, where right, 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 where yeah. where it's weak, and so having the combination of Wolfram and and LLM built in is fantastic. Uh, right. Yeah, makes makes a lot of sense. You can do graphs and stuff and pull all that it directly into into hmm. your responses. And and then there's probably one other useful one out of the seventy that are there now. Right. Right, exactly. Yeah, The um, by the way, Stephen Wolfram is a pretty amazing person. Wolfram Alpha, you know, um, that's what that's that's based on. And he built uh, Mathematica is, is a Wolfram app, and so which is kind of the core of a lot of um, math uh, research. But he wrote a, a book called A New Kind of Science that is really thick and worth reading. It's one of the few books that are, that are that, that's that thick that I've actually read. Um, and uh, it's... It's pretty useful. I'd recommend it. Next question. J.J. McKenna from San Rafael, California has a question. Please advise a sub-5K camera switcher with pan-tilt zoom controls for a six-Panasonic PTZ setup that includes NDI inputs as well as SDI, compatibility for controlling UE150 required. I actually think that, I think that Panasonic makes that. Um, Panasonic, I think, makes a switcher that does NDI, I believe. Um, but I, I, otherwise, I don't. As soon as you say NDI, you've wiped out most of the lower cost switchers that are that are out there. I think that the only way that I would probably, if someone said you had to do that under five thousand dollars, I'd probably buy a PC and vMix. You know, like that's the. I mean, I think that that's the or or a Mac with um, with Mimo um, Live. You know, those two would do what you're trying to do. Um, so depending on which way you want to go, but I think that that's the only way you get under $5,000 with NDI and, um, and I don't know, I think that they have some controls, you know, that, that you're not going to have hardware controls of the PTZ. Um, I, I think that both of those theoretically can talk to the cameras. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think that would be pretty limiting to, to try to get all of those things into one thing, but maybe not. Next question. Next up from Vincent Alvarez in Bellingham, Washington. For a two-PC setup, what is a good brand of KVM to look at or stay away from? Tuomo? Yeah, actually, there is one, at least there's one software-based solution which might work. I don't know your use case, but an application called Synergy. It works if you have two PCs, or like a Mac or a Linux or a Windows machine side by side. When you just move across your mouse onto the other one, it will it will switch to that it will switch your computer to that, uh, com your keyboard to that computer. It works super well. Yeah, my only recommendation, at least on the Mac, is to turn off the drive sharing or any kind of file systems between those computers. Um, I uh, successfully destroyed a Mac Mini that I, I still don't think has ever been quite the same with Synergy and put it into a loop that um, became completely unstable. <laughs> you know, so And it, what happened was I got onto the edge between two computers with the file, carrying a file, and I, I don't, I still haven't, it's still not quite right. So, um, so anyway, it, I don't know exactly how, how, how it did that much damage, but it, it, it did. Um, but overall, uh, I think Synergy, I know a lot of people have worked with it really well and it worked really well for me until, until I added file, sh uh, sharing between the two. Uh, next question. 
Jonas Dattel from Stuttgart, Germany. Adobe today announced they're so sure you won't get sued using Firefly that they will cover legal bills for you. Just a marketing slant or maybe a glimpse into the future for ethical use. Go ahead, John. This is a, a long battle that's going to pursue. So, so both Adobe and Getty Images are on on one side of the fence, and then and then the open source community and and uh, Midjourney on the other. And then you've got countries like Japan saying that they're not going to go after any violations of copyright. And then you've got this law in in Europe, which may push DeepMind out of Europe completely because they'll just go to those countries that aren't enforcing these sort of laws. So it's it's an interesting battle. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, it's probably both uh, a marketing slant and um, a um, a good solution for their strategy of owning the uh, planet. Um, Adobe owns all the uh, the stock music or stock uh, programs or footage. I'm trying to say stock footage. So if you generate something in Adobe and they're using Adobe stock footage, then there's no uh, no foul. Good, Courtney. It's just a marketing slant. I'm surprised that Adobe doesn't put a uh, a price on it, you know, like Firefly with the special insurance rider and for another $5 a month, you get the insurance rider because uh, liability for using a product created using Firefly is going to lie with Adobe, not with you, because they created the model by scraping stuff off the internet, maybe without a license. And that's how they could be sued. Uh, you as the end user, probably if you just put a, an attribution, you know, images in, in, created in Firefly or something somewhere in the credits uh, or, or in a tiny type at the very bottom, uh, I probably would alleviate you from any lawsuits anyway. So I think it's mainly a marketing move. They would be liable for the, you know, any lawsuits that come in anyway. So, yeah, I think it's a. I think that the, the copyright claims are going to be pretty a pretty tall order. Um, it's going to take many, many years to get through it. There's going to be a lot of people using it. It'll be normalized by the time it gets there. I just think it's going to be really hard. So I think that it's, yeah, I think it's a marketing thing and, and it's probably good. And, and if you're a large corporation, you're probably going to be paying attention to not using AI generated things because you're a big fish to be, to be caught if things go wrong. If you're a regular person, I don't know if it's really going to matter to people. Um, but the, um, but I think that it's going to take years um, to, figure out what 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 is what related to this and um i think the chances of winning the copyright claims are pretty low you know and by the time they get to the supreme court so many people will be using it in so many places i'm not entirely clear that it would it, you know it would just be hard to unwind go ahead chris i personally love the idea of adobe paying for my legal bills because um i'd i'd just love to get some of my money back from them over the years, <laughs> yeah, it makes exactly. me really want to use Firefly like excessively, yeah. like try yeah. and get. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I think yeah, that exactly. sounds fun. It sounds great. Next question. Dave Kaufman from Vancouver, British Columbia asking, as an office hours panelist, do you have a separate comms channel or are you just hearing content? Go ahead, Chris. So Dave, it's, it's super cool. Uh, Unity, uh, the Unity system that Mickey has built for this show uh, gives everybody the ability to talk everybody in the back end the ability to talk to anybody they want to what they've done is they've um subsetted uh you could say governed or limited but that just sounds draconian they've subsetted enough stuff for the panelists to be able to hear what we need to hear we can if somebody in the back end reaches out to us to say hey you know there's a 
there's a monster behind you. I can actually respond back to that person. You're right. Mickey's just talking to me right now. Um, and I can respond back to them. But the uh, he also has the ability to feed music to us if he needs to, or if we were having, you know, some sort of a remote um feed from someplace, he could feed us that. Uh the Unity system at the hands of a pro, super powerful. And Mickey does a great job managing it all. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I agree with Chris. Uh, and Mickey does do a great job with it. It's um, generally there for if there's a problem. There's not a regular chatter going on in the back channel to us uh, because some people are good at that. Some people are not. If you're a broadcaster, you're used to hearing out of one ear anyhow and uh, talking out of the other side of your mouth, as it were. But um, I, the only time I've heard anything on Unity has been when the uh, the jet engine, the left engine's on fire. Otherwise, no, no sound at all. Go ahead, Chris. The other thing to keep in mind, Dave, is that by and large, what we do here is we sit in a Zoom meeting and we talk amongst each other in the Zoom meeting. Um, the Unity is just a completely different system for us to hear. And then what I do, I don't know what everybody else does. I actually pan unity to one ear so that I, it, it's distinctly different because I was like, Oh, Mickey's over there, you know? So I like to have it in just one ear. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah. I was just going to agree with Chris, some way to make it sound different. Like you can filter it. Um, or in uh, unity, you can turn on a little, uh, chirp. That happens before. So when you hear that chirp, you know, stand by for a message. So it's good to have that. I will say that it, we don't use it that often in the show, but when we, when it's needed, it's really, really useful. And uh, in general, in production, comms are probably one of the most under uh, evaluated, you know, under represented things in production. If you want to know the difference between a really professional production and a, and kind of a hokey production is oftentimes a, comms are a big part of that because how you talk to everyone, it was, it was, we were doing the soccer game and and I was actually, you know, we were, we had an engineer or, you know, our, our local engineer, audio engineer, Derek talking to Mickey, you know, while we're setting up mics and putting things together. And one of the guys there was like, who's he talking to? And I was like, oh, he's talking to Mickey. And he goes, where's Mickey? And he's I was like, Manila. And his head just went, you know, like, you know, just like, you know, like, it, just, it was just like I'm in the audio engineers listening to you and telling him what, what, what switches to hit and how, how to change the stuff on the, on the sound devices, you know, and the Scorpio and the electrosonics. And, and, um, anyway, and then we're talking to someone else and, 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 uh, I was, you know, but the thing is, is that we've, it's become so fluid inside of our community, um, to have comms all the time. It really makes a huge difference. And I, you know, if you're not using them, we, we're going to talk more about comms this year just because I feel like we haven't represented enough. So we'll show you a couple different comm systems and talk about uh, how we approach those in the not-too-distant future. Next question. Jonas Dattel from Stuttgart, Germany. How often do you inject system messages into ChatGPT to stop hallucination? System messages are the mega prompts used to create characters. Go ahead, John. So this is an interesting question. If you listen to Ilya and Wojcik from OpenAI on Lex, they talk about specifically this and how they handle this. And what's interesting is they remove temperature as part of GPT-4 where you can't set it. But if you go into if you go into Microsoft Copilot, you can select. It says precise or it says creative. And if you hit precise, it's going to minimize solutions as much as it can. The other thing is to reword and create the mega prompts helps significantly. The other interesting thing is if you use the API, you'll get totally different answers completely. So it's 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 still a challenge. 
Yeah, I I do. Ha- I have learned over time to give ChatGPT a lot of context. So I don't I don't necessarily call them mega prompts, but I don't just ask ChatGPT GPT questions very often anymore. I say you are this. And this is what I'm looking for. And this is how I want it to come out. And all the way down to the formatting. Like, I want you to format it this way. And I want you to da-da-da-da-da-da. And, and it makes it infinitely more, more powerful. I think a lot of people, when they say that ChatGPT doesn't know what it's talking about, are not giving any context. They're just saying, I'm just going to ask you something. And that's just like walking up to a random person on the street and asking them a, a random question and <laughs> expecting them to have an idea of what, of what the answer is. It definitely makes a huge difference. Uh, next question. David Brady from New York, New York. Neural Nearstream camera seems to be going after the Mevo space. Has anyone seen or are they interested? And there's a link to it. Good, Courtney. I was just taking a look at the uh, website for this thing. This is what it looks like. Um, it uh, it looks like it's a streaming camera. It has a hybrid zoom 20x. I'd worry about that. And it comes with an app that apparently lets you hook several of these up and looks like it's switched between them on the app, like a touchscreen switcher. So that looks interesting. Um, the thing to remember about a uh, hybrid zoom or a digital zoom, uh, it, it this one outputs 1080p, but I think it has a 1440 uh, uh, sensor in it. So it uses that for its hybrid zoom. Uh, a hybrid zoom will you know take a portion of its larger, larger uh, chip and uh, take a section out of it as an area of interest and digitally, you know, zoom you in on it by excluding pixels. You don't get the uh, increased bokeh as you get to a longer lens like a conventional zoom does. So it doesn't look like a regular zoom uh, or behave like a regular zoom, but it can get you closer if it has enough resolution to throw away uh, to get you in tighter. But it looks interesting. Uh, It'd be interesting to see how well it works. And and the price of it, I think, is 400 bucks. Uh, So... uh, It'd be interesting to see uh, how well it performs in a situation where multiple cameras are using. It, they say it's usable for worship services, et cetera. So, you know, Tony was asking about these earlier. Maybe it's something that he could use. I uh, I ordered one based on the question, so we'll see. We'll we'll uh, we'll we'll see what what it looks like when it gets here. Um, if I don't like if we don't like it, then. I'll send it, I'll take it back to Whole Foods and return it when I get my arugula. <laughs> so, 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 the, uh, so we'll, 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 we'll uh, carefully open it and uh, run it head to head. I think it's pretty hard for me. The advantage of that long focus or the zoom, if it's effective, is putting it in the back of a room. I don't know how great that is for people to watch. I think that the idea of putting cameras in the back of the room is very um, old school. At this point, so um, so I, I think that it'll be interesting to see what that looks like. But taking a look at it, I think is worth it. I have to look at these cameras all the time, so I'm gonna I went ahead and pick, picked one up to take a look at it. Um, so we'll test it uh, against most likely the Link 360 um, in um, the next uh, couple next week or so. So we'll, we'll see what it looks like. Next question. Next one in from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Paul asks, Tulamikes.com is starting two podcasts and wants ideas. One will be for their sister company, Soya's Focused Pro Audio. They'll interview producers, engineers, studio owners, and artists. Sound familiar, and how will they make this work? Go ahead, Mitchell. Uh, Paul, you've uh, brought that mic on before. It looks interesting, but uh, so far I haven't seen any or heard any in the wild. Perhaps that's the only way they can get people to try it out, is to have people actually use them so they can put them on a podcast. And a quick reminder that you can uh, you can ask your questions throughout the hour. So we have uh, uh, 
Tuomo Coloma is, uh, is here and he's going to talk about SPX in the second hour. So if you've got questions and the questions are already stacking up uh, for Tuomo. So uh, so if you've got questions, go ahead and throw those in for the second hour. If you've got questions for the first hour, we still have some room so you can throw those questions in. Make sure to also vote on the questions. Let us know what order you'd like us to address them um, as you're watching. So go ahead and do that now. And let's go ahead to the next question. Jack Rupel from Breckenridge, Colorado any one of the panel using H3VR or other ambisonic mic, what's your use case, workflow, plugins, software, timecode solution, et cetera? Uh, we should break that down. I think we'll, we'll look for a second hour on how we're using it, um, you know, for, for what we're doing. I'm, I'm using the Sennheiser Ambio mic. Um, that Sennheiser is then going, what we're doing right now is using it in the field. Uh, we're taking this four mics, and those mics go into a, um, a Scorpio uh, as as four of the inputs. Those along with the mics are being, um, you, we, we convert that to AES, and then we're embedding those into the SDI feeds back to um, Master Control. And then um, we are then unwrapping those back out to, um, to a 5.1, which we can then mix in and use them as an atmospheric sound. Uh, we're still in early phases of it, but it's working pretty well so far. Um, about to go spend a lot of money on a on a case for it so that because what we learned over on Sunday in the soccer game was that we needed a wind <laughs> a better better way to manage wind so um so we're we're going to you know we're we're kind of continuing to evolve that solution uh, I think that um, we're going to bring uh, we'll see if I can persuade Mickey to come on and talk about it I I will admit that I don't know the pipeline as well once it gets back here I just know the hardware part so um so we'll uh, we'll we'll see if we can't unwrap that for you so to speak uh, go ahead Courtney and if you don't have the deep pockets for the Scorpio, you can use the Zoom F6. Uh, is has a a ambisonics uh, mode for it. It takes four. It takes you know. It has six mic preamps built into it, uh, and four of those can be assigned to the ambisonic, and two could be used for your conventional foreground sound. And it has a time code generator built in, so it solves all of those problems uh, with one seven hundred dollar versus seven thousand dollar. <laughs> It's more than that. It's more than that. Okay. The, well, the, the, if you get the, all the uh, plugins, like I think, I think the Scorpio starts at like twelve thousand dollars. The, the yeah. uh, it was less when when I got it. The um the uh the the one thing that we need though is those, that AES out. You know, because we have to then re embed it back into the stream. So that's that's one of the challenges that we've had in the past. Um, there's not a lot of other mixers that 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 do that in the field. Um, uh, next question. Craig McFarlane from Boston, Massachusetts. As a question, how many panelists are using Zoom Cuts as your main Zoom client? I'm I'm using a mixture of Zoom Cuts and uh, and Zoom. Uh, I I I use it to enter um, oftentimes to enter office hours for a reason. I didn't use it this morning, but I usually use it, and then I I use it every time to enter after hours. And so I it's just a it's just a little and a lot of it right now is is you know testing it and figuring it out and and putting those things together. But I I'm trying to I'm probably going to move over. There's been a couple of little login things that I've been fiddling with to make sure that I'm getting it all correct. But outside of that, I'm trying to move to Zoom cuts as my main client for everything. I may get to a point soon where I um, where I stop using the Zoom client altogether, so that I so that I just don't have to think about whether the Zoom cuts is up. I think sometimes I naturally hit a link and it opens up Zoom, and then I'm not in Zoom cuts, and so I I want to. You know, kind of, I'm trying to work on fixing that so that it just always comes up that way. That way, I know I can use the the automations that I've been that I've been working on. So uh, I think that it's it's a really solid and it's 
kind of fun to have those tools just kind of built in for, for shortcuts. I would highly recommend that. We had a great talk a couple of weeks ago with the team there, and uh, we'll, we'll be talking about it more in the next couple of weeks. Uh, next question. Jonas Dattel from Stuttgart, Germany, asking, how do you use Playouts VT in your productions, and how can it enhance an otherwise live show? Uh, we use a lot of Playouts. Um, I think that the primary thing that we use is Softron, mostly because we need to have uh, 10-bit uh, ten bit outputs. So um, that's the, for Playout, that's the one thing that most of the Playout systems that we have, software Playouts, um, whether, you know, so we can use HyperDex or Softron for, for 10-bit Playout. Um, and so that's important because a lot of my, my shows need to be 10-bit. And so uh, for but either HDR or for just that, that's the spec for the shows. So, so I think that that's, that's where we use those. The, the big thing with Playout, of, obviously, is it gives you the ability to take, to take something you've spent a lot of time on. Live is hard to put as much production value into, but every once in a while, being able to throw videos in that are pre-produced is going to add that, that feel and that production value that you wouldn't get otherwise. So, and it, it allows you to you know, put a very compacted solution out um, that is, um, that's compelling for the audience. We also use it for things like countdown clocks. And also one of the things important is playouts, uh, having a five-minute playout or a three-minute playout also buys you time. <laughs> so, um, so we, you know, it gives your live team a moment to make transitions, to do other things. It's, it's, you can paper over a lot of things uh, with, a, with a live playout at some point. Um, the other thing we almost, for a lot of big shows that are running a long time, so if I'm doing like a 24-hour show or a 72-hour show, which we've done in the past, uh, one of the things that we do is we always have, we shoot time-lapse of the setup getting built. Not necessarily our setup, but the, the you know, we shoot a lot of time-lapse of everything happening. And then we leave that looping on a Mac mini that's just sitting there just looping out that time-lapse. And the reason we do that is that time-lapse is something that people love to watch. It just, it's just something that attracts them very quickly. And anytime we're in trouble, we can just hit a button. Instead of going fading to black, we fade to a time-lapse. <laughs> it just sits there and everyone will just sit there and watch it going, oh, that's really cool. And we'll have like, we'll be right back. But it'll, but it holds them much better than a slide. So um, I, you know, I would definitely recommend it. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, having worked as a professional video playback engineer for many years in Hollywood, uh, I ended up writing my own software because I couldn't find any software that did really what I needed. Uh, and Jonas, I, I've been uh, hounding you to put those kind of tools into play, play out B. Uh, but uh, uh, the thing that that is most helpful for me, for example, for if, if you're doing, let's say, an award show where you've got clips that you've got to cut to for each person that's nominated for something like the Academy Awards, there are big professional tools that do that. But if you're doing a small, you know, community service award show and you need to do that, you can't bring in an EVS or something bigger. Uh, just having a play out uh, that can uh, you'll you'll uh, receive submissions hopefully in the right format or a usable format from several different people. And you'll have to, a lot of times you'll you won't receive these till the evening of the show right before the show. So you have to have the ability to play a variety of formats out in your player. You have to have the ability to set an endpoint and an outpoint marker without having to edit the video beforehand. That's important. And uh, if possible, you can put uh, markers inside uh, drop, drop bookmarks inside that you can just hop instantly to using a hotkey. Uh, so if you have one long videotape that has, you know, seven clips in it that you want to use, you can put markers at the beginning in, uh, of each clip and not have to edit them up into separate clips or put them into some type of clip player. So the ability to put in and out markers, the ability to uh, put 
put uh, bookmarks in and the ability to automatically have it transition to a slide or a bumper slide or black uh, whenever it hits the end of a marker before it plays the next marker. So you have to set some logic into the player so that, you know, it won't play through this marker into the next marker. If you don't want it to, it'll stop and go to black or stop and go to a bumper slide. So those, those kind of features I look for in a player uh, and that's what I've built into my players. So um, that's what I look for when I'm looking for playout software. It makes it uh, much more useful on the day. Go ahead, Mitchell. I like my hyperdecks. They work great for the most part. Um, but I wish I had software to control them. And I wish they had the features that Courtney just outlined. Because top and tailing a file and uh, creating a playlist are top of my list of things that I wish it had. Um, of the things out there that can control a hyperdeck, um, believe it or not, Mix Effect Pro has uh, some basic controls of managing uh, your playlist, which is uh, a feature I didn't know until I started messing around with uh, the companion uh, Stream Deck uh, buttons. And uh, the other one is that Foonsock uh, showed us uh, a piece of software called Hyper Slow uh, the other day that was amazing. So if you get a chance, take a look at that. Um, I don't have the link, but I can search for it. But uh, once again, I plead for Jonas to come up with a piece of software to control our Hyperdex. Next question. Next question in from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Discuss. Apple is trying to own the rights to an actual Apple, which for us is something that is really almost universal. It should be free for everyone to use as they wish. It's, a, it's behind a locked paywall, this link, so we don't have enough information to talk about it. Next question. Next question in from Jonas Dottel again, and he's in Stuttgart, Germany, asking, how do you call the system that sends pre-recorded videos into your switcher? Playout, VT, tape, video. Feels very, uh, feels every production uses a different term. Most of the productions that we work on, probably because we define those, is playout. <laughs> so our playout operator is usually how, how we refer to those uh, to that to that position, at least here. I've definitely seen it talked about as VT tape or video, but playout is usually what what we consider um, the the term for for this. Next question, Adam. Excuse me, Robin Cutshaw in Atlanta, Georgia. Is there a good resource YouTube video you can recommend for setting up your inner ear monitors with the X thirty two? I don't know if there's a, of a, a specific one, it, although it, it probably would be, there's a whole second hour, someone should write that down for audio, uh, that, just talking about in-ear, because um, I think in-ear is actually a whole science to itself. So there's the basic in-ear, which is what we're doing here, which is kind of just a mix minus of ourselves and how that works. But in-ear monitors uh, for, especially for musicians, can get very complex. So you look at a, in a, a band and the what the, what the vocalist wants, what the guitarist wants, all those things are all different mixes. They're all their own mixes oftentimes for each one of them. And I think talking through that would be a great, great second hour. Next question. Next one in from Dave Kaufman, Vancouver, British Columbia. It's quite tedious to sync audio and video for live streaming. I have to basically record the YouTube stream, then watch it and adjust the delay and try again. Is there a better way? Good, Mitchell. Um, I prefer, I know it's a little controversial, to run my mic directly into the camera, and uh, then it goes uh, via HDMI into my uh, ATEM. The fact that you're running into the camera, and in this case, I'm using a Sony FX3 with a uh, digital uh, mic head on it, so the quality uh, is much better. You're kind of bypassing the preamp built into it, but it's always coincident with the uh, uh, the video that's uh, pumped into the, uh, the ATEM, so always in sync. 
There's a lot of different ways to do this. Um, you know, so uh, one of the ways that the ways that the, the most professional way is using something um, like Matchbox. Matchbox is the it used to be called Validate, the same team, but they start a new company. And uh, Validate is you know will generate a signal that is, but you really have to make sure that you're generating it through the entire system. The mistake people make is they generate it at the truck or they generate it at somewhere that doesn't help you. So you have to have that out there. There's an iPad version of that. I think it's called Matchbox Glass that you can just hold up and, and we've used that on stage. You just hold it up on stage and take your mic and point it towards the iPad. Now it's going to play that signal back and it will process it and tell you whether uh, tell you what your sync is, um, and then we just dial it in. So Matchbox and with that iPad app. Now the Matchbox hardware is between twelve and sixteen thousand dollars. You buy, you want to buy it once. <laughs> so uh, the the iPad app is free. Um, I do have some ideas on how to do this without that process, but that's the that's the kind of the um, bulletproof way to do that. The way we do it a lot of times when we don't have that is we actually a lot of us have gotten pretty good at eyeing it up. Uh, it turns out that there's uh, certain consonants that you can say that um, that are very hard to say without do your mouth being in a very specific position. And P is one of them. So a lot of times we tell people, we tell people that we actually have we have uh, one of our uh, PAs wrote it. We have this kind of absurd uh, thing about Peter Piper and um, pickles and all kinds, but but it's a bigger story and it's all a lot of P's. And if we watch you talk about that, we can sit there and dial it in while you're talking and um, get a pretty get pretty close to the uh, the right answer um, you know, or the right angle. A lot of times, just watching it rehearsal is enough to get back to the way that that we do it when we don't have a lot of time. Um, we will go up with a slate, you know, a slate that you would normally have for film. We'll have everyone just point their camera at you know point a camera at the stage. We'll take our mic, we'll take the slate, and close it while we're recording on our encoder. Um, and uh, we'll grab the segments and just take and do exactly what you're talking about, which is what we take them into Final Cut or something else, and we move that move the audio until it matches, and look at how many frames we had to use to move it, and then we apply that to our delay. I mean, that takes it. It takes us more time to do, but it takes less time on stage. And when there's 50 people that are in the in the room, taking 50 people's time for them to wait for you to get the sync right oftentimes isn't efficient from a cost perspective. So we just get up there, it takes us literally 30 seconds to grab the sample that we need to make that actually work. Um, and so that's the, you know, that's kind of what we, um, or how we, uh, how we process that. The, um, uh, be careful of doing a record on the YouTube stream and then using that. It's the, the record on YouTube and the live YouTube are different. So they're, they're not the same by about a frame. So uh, we we learned that from using Matchbox. <laughs> you go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, the uh, the best way, of course, is a second audio system. Um, you can also uh, record off the microphone on the camera and do a second system yeah. like a mix pre or whatever, mm -hmm. and then in post you can uh, conform those uh, like all of them. I'm sure Final Cut does it, Premiere does it, where you can right. auto conform the audio. Mm -hmm. Next question. Next question is from Douglas Carmichael. Would there be any iOS apps that could automate time lapse photography? Uh, yeah, the the um, the iPhone app automates time lapse photography. <laughs> so the, the iPhone app itself has a time lapse setting. You just set it to that and hit go, and it'll do it. It'll do it about every five seconds. Um, if you have the storage and the bat and and you can power it, I highly recommend doing your time lapse by shooting video. 
you can shoot it at a lower frame rate, 24 or 30 or whatever, but but shoot video of the, because what you can do is use all the in-between frames for motion blur later. Um, if you do only time-lapse, you, you, and you also have, you can choose what kind of time-lapse, you can slow it down, speed it up. You have a lot more to work with. So I would recommend thinking about shooting video for time-lapse, but if you're gonna shoot time-lapse, there's other time-lapse apps. There's lots of apps on the phone phone that will do it, the, 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 that'll give you more control. Um, of those things. And the other thing you want to keep control of that's a little harder on the iPhone app itself is exposure because it'll change up and down. And you want to decide whether you want to lock that or not. Now, next question. Tommy Shantz from St. Paul, Minnesota asks, what are the software video switchers that the folks in the panel choose to use in their setups and why? Go ahead, Tuomo. I'm an OBS guy. <laughs> so I'm using OBS wherever I can. As long as I have an, a PC, a powerful PC. So if you have a powerful PC with a decent graphics board, I, I have just positive experiences using in using it in in uh, longer productions and in my home setup as well. So in, on my computer here, I can see currently that the OBS is taking 4.5% uh, of the CPU usage. So I'm super happy with it. Yeah, yeah, I I um I use Mimo Live on my end. Um, so for for a software switcher, most of the time um, I'm on a Mac. <laughs> so so that's the I think that that's probably the best one. I think OBS works really well. Twomo, you're using it on a PC, right? That's just to confirm. Correct. Yeah, and um and so on a PC, I think that OBS works really well. Um, I think a lot of people use VMix as well. Um, but I I don't. I, I don't use PCs in, in my in my core production for a variety of reasons. Um, and so uh, so Mimo lot works pretty well for me. Go ahead, Chris. Uh, I've said this before. I'll say it again. Um, physical switchers have a hard limit. You have eight inputs. I got to I got to the eighth button. I got no, I can't ask it to do anything more. Software switchers are more difficult because we can keep adding. Uh, what do they call them? Scenes and sources and whatnot, yeah. and so and so, and so it's very easy to like. Oh, I built this, you know, this five-up look three months ago, and I forgot it's in there, or I loaded a bunch of video files in to help Preto do his podcast, and I forgot that they're connected to this scene. Um, actual thing I've done, uh, and so I firmly believe that OBS on a Mac is okay as long as you don't ask it to do too much. I do very little with it. Um, uh, but it's the last it's the last pass of video. Like I go through my extreme out of there into OBS for a few more things. It's almost like having two Emmys, if you will. But I don't ask it to do much. Everybody says I'm uh, you know Yeah. I, I really feel like you need to use your computer like a, if you if you if you use a software switcher, in my opinion, you really need to think of the piece of hardware that's holding it as an appliance. So, um, you know, so I think that the mistake people make is they, you know, so you, if you're going to put it on a Mac mini or you're going to put it on a PC or you're going to put it on whatever, that's your editing station. And that has become, it's not a multi-use station that happens to cut, edit video every once in a while. It is, that's what that thing does. And it doesn't have any other software on it. It doesn't have any other processes on it. It just does the thing it needs to do. Otherwise, you have people that are editing uh, Photoshop templates uh, for your for their video on their TriCaster, and the TriCaster crashes while the President of the United States is walking into the room. Yeah, that'd not, be bad. Not that that's happened to me, or that I'm still bitter after over ten years. And also, Alex, <laughs> I, I have this appropriate disclaimer here based on I, the last thing I just said. Okay, I can't I can't read it in the grid. <laughs> Chris Fenwick, the, the views of Chris Fenwick do not necessarily reflect those of Office Hours Global. <laughs> there you go. Uh, next question. 
Paul Wallace from Austin, Texas. How do you use the big orange button on the side of the Apple Watch? And what does it do? Is it multifunctional? Yeah, you can define it to do a lot of things. Mine happens to turn on all my lights. <laughs> so so when, I, when I hit mine as I walk into the room, uh, I, I have a shortcut connected to my watch. So uh, Chris is like, Chris, Chris is, you can't see it because I'm the only one on here, but Chris is looking at, um, you know, he's looking at me like I'm crazy, but, but it, 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 it's, I it's very. I thought you used your, your watch to pay for things in the store. How could it possibly do two different things, Alex? I, I, I do, I, I, it's amazing. The watch can, can do both, both of those things at the same time. It's, 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 it's stunning. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Okay. Uh, the orange button has one one main purpose. That's to sell Apple Watches because you can say, "Oh, it's a genuine Apple Watch. See, it has the orange button on it." But as far as its actual use, it's programmable. You can use you can set up the the app on your iPhone to perform different tasks. And if you long hold it, I think on the Ultra, it turns on the siren, which alerts people <laughs> in the area that you have an Apple Watch. There you go. There we go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So so see if I have a shortcuts here. So if I turn this off. I like this and I just hold up my my little thing as I walk in and I just push my little uh watch hopefully it'll turn on or it'll be a really bad yeah see there we go so as I walk into it it feels very James Bond I just I'm walking towards my office and I just hit my watch and the, all the lights come on in my in my uh in my room I I quite like it um next question Derek Alexander has a question a group of singers are visiting our church they requested to tap into our in-house console and will be bringing their own mixing board for them to do their own mix from the stage. Any suggestions in terms of how to properly set this up? Go ahead, Mitchell. Well, if you both need to do it at the same time, uh, there's a number of uh, approaches to it. They make boxes that will split uh, microphones out against two different um, um, uh, destinations. Uh, the other thing is that you might consider using the direct out on your console to feed them. Um, those are the only two things offhand that I can think of. Hopefully you don't have 32 inputs. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Uh, clearly they don't trust you, Derek. No, um, what they're probably doing is they have, I would imagine they have some sort of a rack mounted mixer. Uh, they have their microphones and whatnot and such as they may even be driving inner monitors. Smart way to do it. If you're a touring act, uh, if you, if you go around, they're probably going to feed you um, a couple of line level inputs and say, when you want to hear us, just turn up those two inputs and make it as loud as you are comfortable in your room. I would imagine that's what they're doing. And that way they can control their monitors. And it just, it makes it easier if you are dealing with a different sound tech every night, whatever. I've worked with all kinds of bands, including a really great YouTube cover band that did the exact same thing. They had their own box. They'd plop it down in the corner of the set. Everything was done in that, and they could play any size venue at all. Just say, fade us up. Yeah, uh, it, it really does generally make it easier when the band brings in their own mix. Um, it depends on the, if you're doing a, big, a bigger event and you're going from thing to thing, uh, it, a lot of times people stop letting them do that. <laughs> so there's this thing where the very small bands want to control everything, and the very uh, large bands control everything <laughs> like they are they're going to use their own digico or whatever they're not asking the medium-sized bands tend to be kind of in a middle middle ground in that area but um especially at fest like at a festival they can't have you bring in your own mix so you have to really figure out how you're going to do that and a lot of times they bring in a little usb stick 
like this is my setup for the digital, you know, they'll ask you what ahead of time what what mixer you're using. And usually it's a, I mean, often for a lot of these festivals, it's a Digico. And they're gonna come in and and uh and and make those changes on on their own. It, to your it, it's much easier for you to let them do it. They know what all the cues are, they know what the EQ is, they know what the stuff is. You're not gonna have time or you're not gonna want to spend time figuring that out. You just wanna get two balanced outputs, a stereo output from them, um, that has that be an input, and that just goes that's something that you can fade up and fade down, as was said before. Um, there's a temptation uh, that we've fallen into to ask for Maddie or Dante um, and uh, clocking. Clocking becomes a thing. Um, and between two mixers, I do not try to do that anymore. So literally, if I have Dante, I will take a stage box and put it next to their mixer and try to get and, and try to have them um, double everything out to me. Uh, a lot of times they have that, especially if at a festival. I'd rather do that than try to figure out their clocks. I once delayed a very large artist uh, um, for about 15 minutes <laughs> because we clock, because we use Maddie. <laughs> so, so anyway, that, that was the last time I, I did that. So anyway, uh, because they it, it, the clocking became a problem across the board. So anyway, so clocking is not your friend um, in, that, in that area. Um, next question. Kenny Hampton in Greenville, Illinois has a question. Does a translucent scrim material exist that will make items behind appear out of focus? A bokeh effect, but for live production. Go ahead, Courtney. I don't think there's a plastic material that do, does this, but for years and years, you know, there's there's a a large weave muslin uh, called a scrim, uh, and you can get it in black or white that you can put between the background and the foreground, and if it's white, you can light it and make the background kind of disappear, um, and then change the lighting, and then the background will show through. It will diffuse the background a little bit, uh, like a black net called a net. Uh, so you can do that, but I don't think there's a, uh, you know, the closest would be the Roscoe Opal, but it's going to, you don't want to shoot through it. You want to use it to diffuse light slightly. Uh, but, uh, I don't think there's anything that actually lets an image show through unless something is very close to that scrim material, because once it gets more than about a foot away, it's not visible at all. Yeah. I think that the, the easiest thing to use is, is a bigger sensor on your camera <laughs> to get the bokeh effect. Uh, it, it really does help. And we have used a lot of different scrims to cut light down uh, behind us, but you really have to worry about a lot of times those are kind of like a net. They're a mesh and they're going to moray as becomes an issue if you don't, again, have that that larger sensor, which is which would have worked on its own by itself. Uh, so so you have to be very careful of how close your subjects are to that background if, you, if you're going to put some kind of scrim behind it. Next question. Douglas Carmichael, what would be the closest alternative to Filmic Pro that isn't subscription-based? I think Shoot Shoot um, is probably, Michael Forrest has Shoot and is probably the closest thing. I, I will say that the, to me, they're two different things. Shoot's very live-oriented, uh, um, but can do other things. Filmic kind of can do live, but really is much more of a control-your-camera kind of thing. And I don't, I think the reason that Filmic has built up a subscription model that's a little more expensive is because there's not really any other options to do it as to the level that they're doing it at with all the tools that we use inside of filmic when i'm when i'm using it um i use filmic for some fairly technical shoots with my with my phones and uh it is um i haven't found another app that is close to having all the tools that i'm expecting to have from filmic so that's that's the real challenge that people have now, next question paul wallace and austin texas has a question austin and adelaide are sister cities how can we celebrate this and explore on office hours? Maybe we'll get the guys together from after hours. Uh, next question. Next one in from Douglas Carmichael. I've heard a lot about vulnerabilities in MoveIt, which is a file transfer product. 
What does MoveIt offer that SFTP and other open source products don't? A lot of corporations and government organizations tend to not put a lot of open source. And they have even directives of not putting open source software on their um, platforms or in, inside of their networks. And so usually they want to buy something. <laughs> they want to buy something with service. You know, like, so they want to know that they can, they can, there's someone to call if, if something happens and uh, they want it to be, a, uh, you know, and, and so MoveIt became um, a, a fairly cost-effective, uh, I believe it's, they have large, you know, corporate solutions so that you can buy a lot of it all at one time. Um, and uh, it's been used in a lot of government agencies. And it turns out that when it has vulnerabilities, it, everybody's got it. <laughs> you know, so uh, so I think that that's been, um, I think that MoveIt may not be around for much longer. The, the vulnerabilities have been heavy enough that I'm not sure, I, I can imagine a lot of organizations that I've worked with will probably send out something that says you need to re remove move it <laughs> uh, from every computer in the entire company. Um, and I, if they're not doing that, they're not really doing their job because there's enough vulnerability there that they, that they, after this has happened, if it happened again and someone loses data, uh, they'll have a lawsuit um, that they didn't, they didn't handle this. So it's, it's pretty problematic for the company. Go ahead, Courtney. Besides the security issues that Alex was pointing out, you know, one of the problems that move it has run into and many other file movers have run into was uh, cross compatibility between file systems. And uh, when you're moving, uh, that's why you'll have a two gigabyte file limit per file on file size when you're moving files. Because of FAT32 had a uh, used, used integer, you know, used uh, <laughs> integer type um, uh, files, file allocation table. So it was limited to two gigabyte file size. So if somebody was wanting to transfer something and put it on their thumb drive and it was 2.5 gigabytes, it, it wouldn't go. So a lot of them just limited. There were artificial limitations in the move it. Uh, it could move larger file sizes, but when it gets to the other size, you may not be able to copy it off that destination folder onto something you want to transport it on. So that's one of the problems. As we get further and further away from FAT32 and EXFAT becomes ubiquitous everywhere on all thumb drives, et cetera, then you may see uh, may see a little comeback in that. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if they survive. Um, usually, the big security flaws like this, especially when they're well promoted, um, you know, takes a lot to dig out of. So we'll see how that goes. Um, next question: Gordon Lake from Los Angeles, California, has a question. Where does a VLAN fit into a production setup? A lot of times you want to protect certain data um, from each other. So when you don't have a VLAN, this is a virtual uh, local area network. So you're not doing another local area network. That would mean you're running more cables. So you're, you're, you're replacing copper with a set of rules. And those rules will separate your bandwidth. Let's say you have a 10 gig pipe uh, between everything inside of an organization or a one gig pipe, whatever you'd like to use there. Um, you can carve that out and carve out separate VLANs, uh, and you might, for instance, create a VLAN that's just for Dante. You might create it, you know, so that so that you're not so that if you suddenly do a file transfer, you're not knocking all your Dante connections out. Uh, you may um, the most common one that we use is setting up a VLAN because I have to admit, when we're in production, production, we tend to have Dante sitting still on its own LAN, LAN, not VLAN, but we'll tend to build copper that is just the Dante network so that we definitely don't have any chances of having that happen. But um, but what we do is uh, the, the most common place we do VLAN is we want to protect our bandwidth for streaming. So we want to stream something out and we will request, hey, can I have a 50 meg or 100 meg or 20 meg VLAN 
inside of your network that guarantees that I'm going to get the bit, my bits through no matter what anybody else is doing on the network. Um, and so, um, so that's that's usually where VLANs come into into line in production, and we use them all the time. You know, and um, we set up a you know set them up. They can be set up via a variety, whether it's a certain number of ports that are on it or a certain, you can even uh, lock them to MAC addresses. Uh, you can lock them to a variety of different things that, that um, uh, you know, put them in, put everything where it needs to be so that you can protect it. But it's mostly you have bandwidth that needs to be protected all the time. And then you let everybody else be kind of in an open network. You can also set a, a lot of rules, like for instance, guests on a VLAN might only be able to upload and download five megs a second. But the staff on another VLAN can has a gig, <laughs> so so you can you can set different rules for different people so that your your bandwidth isn't all eaten up. All right, we we're jumping into the second hour, um, and uh, we're really excited to have Tuomo Coloma here. Uh, he is uh, he is the creator of SPX, and um, and he is you know, when he came on, we were trying to figure this all out. Uh, we we're trying to figure out what SPX was and how it worked, and now we use it every single day on the show. Uh, it's good to have you here, Tuomo. I'm super I'm super glad to be back here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the first, I guess the first time we, you were here, we were we were looking at it, we were trying to figure it out, and and now we, we're we're deep into it. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what SPX actually is? Of course, I can. So uh, my personal background is in is in well, I started in advertising. Really, I was I was doing three D animation, and then I transitioned into broadcast, and I have been working in broadcast graphics for about twenty five years. And the past ten years, I have been working as a uh, through my own company, working with broadcasters, figuring out graphics, visual identities, technical workflows when it comes to graphics and so on. And in uh, September of 2020, I released uh, SPX graphics application as an open source graphics generator. It's an HTML based uh, application that you can run on your PC or Mac or Linux. And uh, it can uh, play out graphics like I'm having here on my screen. So if, if you if you ha if you haven't maximized your video, now you should do it because there's going to be a ton, ton of graphics here. <laughs> <laughs> and, and tell us what the difference is. Most of us are used to having graphic systems that are outputting the graphics for our uh, production, but you're using HTML. What's the difference between the two? Right. So. Uh, I would like to go through some uh, basic concepts when it comes to graphics overall, and I have some slides prepared for it. And uh, so, first of all, we will need to somehow identify what graphics really are. Because uh, when you talk, talk to people about graphics, they might think about something what happens in your print magazine or in a poster, you know, stuff like that. So uh, graphics in, in broadcast or, or video production sense means uh, things which are overlaid over video. And that can happen in two different ways. That can be uh, sort of like a post workflow where you have in your editing suite, you are overlaying something and you are building that into your video. So it's, it, it, it gets burnt in and during, during play out later on, uh, the video clip actually is going to have those videos, those graphics uh, burnt into the video source itself. The other option is to use live graphics, and SPX is a live graphics application. And that means that it's something which gets triggered during production, during a broadcasting, during the transmission, that it gets overlaid in real time. And the, the key difference there is that uh, live graphics can be used in scenarios which don't work <laughs> through a post workflow, like live sports, news, elections, uh, live betting, uh, 
there are several use cases for live videos. And uh, and a typical uh, sort of like uh, broadcast workflow looks something like this. So, so we have, uh, let me put it up there. So, so we have on the left hand side, we have content. Uh, I mean, and this is a huge oversimplification of, of the broadcast graphics workflow. But just to quickly go through these items so you will understand what I'm talking about. So in the top left corner, you have the content. You have the producers, writers, journalists, depending on your show format. And uh, they are producing a script, some kind of a written document, which is going to describe the, the show that gets produced. Then, uh, of course, we have technology of all, all kinds of technology. I'm not going to go through that deeply in here, but it's always there. That's why I have it there on the slide. And then we have a graphics department. The graphics department is going to do basically three things. They're going to come up with the style, the look, the look and feel of the show. And then they are going to produce these graphic elements. And then there are graphic and, 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 and in this case, they're not producing, they don't, the graphics department doesn't really care about what's in the graphics. They care about how the graphics will look when, when, when that data is delivered to them. Correct. So this is when, when, when we are talking about live production, ab absolutely, that's the way it goes. So graphic department is producing graphics and templates. So those are basically, sometimes these, these terms may overlap, uh, but here what I'm, uh, the, the term graphics means the visual visual component and the template is a user interface for an operator to enter content for your graphics, right? So the graphics department comes up with a look and they come up with graphic elements and templates, a user interface for the end user. So they don't really, they don't care what kind of a name is put in there. They just make sure that no matter how long the, the name is, it's going to fit into the thing. Right. And then, then the script and the graphic templates, they go into some kind of a system. So in the newsroom, they have newsroom content systems, NRSCs, uh, uh, that will take care of managing all this stuff. And in the gallery, in the production room, then they have some kind of a rundown or automation system, which loads in that script, including the, the templates. And the technical director is then, uh, somehow, uh, controlling, operating that system which triggers video server and switches live sources using a mixer or switcher. And uh, next to him is a, is a graphics operator who is using CG. Uh, CG term means character generator. This comes from, you know, maybe some 60s or something when the graphics system was only outputting text and that's it. But we are still calling them CGs. And the CG application, which is the user interface for the graphics operator, is then controlling the graphics renderer, which actually does the heavy lifting and produces pixels, which can be then uh, uh, composited over the live video. And then we have a, the complete product, production, so we have the show, and that gets sent to the master control in a network uh, TV system. And it goes through a playout automation system. And quite often they, 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 they overlay another layer of graphics, which is just channel branding, like the channel logo and a clock and maybe new stickers. And that happens in the master control room and that gets sent out. So this is a, the, the sort of like the workflow, uh, in, in broadcast sense. And when we are talking about the live streaming, of course, it's going to be way, way, uh, simple, more, it's going to be simpler. It's, it's not going to have all these roles, but uh, it's 
good to keep this in mind when we are going forward in this discussion. Absolutely. And and a lot of this looks in a lot of different ways, depending on what people have and what they don't have. Most of the time that those character generators or that graphics get set down as a downstream key. We do that as because we want to protect the if we screw it up, we can go back and post and fix it. <laughs> that's, right. that's mostly yes. why why we uh, why we have a you know have it in a downstream key. But that's essentially a, a, a another bus at the very end um, that that allows us to do that compositing uh, of that of that process. Right. Yes. Correct. And then, uh, then we have like what kind of systems are being used in here. And when I'm of course there's going to be a ton of brands, and I'm just going to mention a couple of them because you you might know these. So like uh, here we have uh, Visarity is. So I have divided this into two groups. So we have uh, like these proprietary graphic systems which are used by bigger broadcasters. Uh, like television networks and so on. So quite often they have a VisRT-based graphics uh, workflow or a ROS expression, Avid, Chiron, Pixel Power, Ventus, Brainstorm. And, and sometimes they have a couple of them. <laughs> so yeah, so yes, you know, sometimes yes. uh, parts yes. of the graphics are being run by one graphic system and another part is being run by another graphic system. Correct. So in, in sort of like... Uh, let's say in elections, you might have something in your in your uh, master control room which is uh, generating uh, channel brand uh, sort of like items, and then the sports production or news production they might have something else. So it can be a combination of these two. Uh, and then when we look at this HTML-based sort of like lighter version, as I would say, there's SPX graphics. Of course, obviously, then the singular live Flowix H2R graphics that you guys know pretty well, and Holo graphics, and of course, a bunch of others. So these are just a few of them. And, uh, and of course, why do we have these? Like, what's the difference there? Right. And um, so there are pros and cons in, in each. And uh, the orange things are the proprietary ones, sort of like the traditional graphic systems, and the green ones is the HTML side. So design tools, that's a, that's a big difference there. So uh, all these proprietary graphics applications, they come with some kind of a design uh, authoring environment that you can take your uh, Photoshop files as layers, you can move those around, you can create 3D geometry, you can move those around, you can animate them, you can assign scripts to these elements, and it, and, uh, you can, you can visually, you, uh, create these, uh, animations and, and graphic elements. That's a, that's a big thing. And in HTML, we really don't have that. Uh, so we are approaching it, but we, as of today, we don't have anything super robust. There's one called Lupic that we work with. Uh, and it's it's kind of nice. It's sort of like an After Effects type of a user interface, which runs in a browser, and it can produce HTML templates. Uh, existing workflows. That's a big difference between an HTML-based uh, or sort of like the proprietary, the typical graphics providers. They have different existing workflows for weather production, sports production, all kinds of existing tools. But in HTML, we often don't. So we, we will need to create those as needed. 3D, another huge difference there. So proprietary systems are mostly real-time uh, real time 3D renderers. And since it is 3D and it's real-time, then you can create uh, augmented reality, now, virtual you, reality productions. 
do you see that changing over time with the with the HTML ones of being able to have better three D renderers or AR renderers inside of the inside of the web browser or inside of the browser based? I absolutely do. So at the moment we don't have. I don't know of any kind of HTML based system which could do uh, augmented reality graphics in three D. Uh, but I'm sure it's coming down the pike because there are already quite powerful three uh, D rendering. Uh, techniques which can run in a browser. So I'm pretty sure we will see that quite soon. Right. That's great. Uh, of course, the price. So now we are going to HTML pros. <laughs> and, so, and we have to remember that some of these proprietary software is 20,000, 50,000, 100,000, $200,000 per seat. <laughs> you know, so so these are, uh, they have a lot of great tools and they have a lot of those things, but they are very expensive to run. Um, you know, and so they usually you find them in trucks or you, they, you rent them out, you know, even, you know, a big company, I had a friend who uh, built a business, they were doing graphics for VizRT and then ended up just building a business, renting the VizRT systems back to ESPN. I think that at some point they had over 20 systems that are just, just providing the VizRT because ESPN wasn't ready to buy that many systems, you know? And so, uh, so those are the kind of things that, that can happen because these, the, the, the software is extremely expensive. Yeah, it's not just the software. There's all, also super uh, pricey components, uh, video boards, graphic mm -hmm. boards dedicated to these applications. So they are, yeah, they are but you can, complex you can still, systems. You can also use that though. I mean, so for instance, yours works with Casper, right? Um, yes. Casper CG, which we use here. So you, so when you see the graphics here, we're, we're doing a key fill output. So it's while the web, the HTML version doesn't need it, uh, it could use it, correct? Correct, yes. And of course, in, in broadcasts, uh, 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 productions quite often we still use SDI key and fill out from a graphic system which gets then mixed in uh, in a switcher. Right, so the price is a big one. Uh, web technologies is a big plus for for us because uh, that allows us to use the coolest, newest tools that people have come up with. And those are quite often API based so we can we can connect the different systems, come up with new workflows like Bringing in, bringing in social media posts uh, from another web browser, we can we can do all these things, uh, and, and and a thing which relates to that is the talent pool. So uh, when we are talking about web technologies, I would say there are like tens of millions of people who can program uh, using a browser right. using HTML, JavaScript, CSS, and related technologies. Whereas when we talk about these proprietary systems, there might be hundreds or thousands. So there's a huge difference in the talent pool when, when we compare these systems. I think it's closer to hundreds. <laughs> High hundreds, yeah, maybe. maybe. <laughs> you know, like of, 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 that's what it feels like anyway when we're trying to find someone to work on some of these systems. Yeah, correct. That is, that is, that is a constant pain point uh, in these productions. Yeah. Open source, that's another big plus for some of the HTML uh vendors not all of them but some are so that relates to the talent pool concept that there's more mm -hmm. people doing more of the work they can create extensions they can create new workflows graphics whatever but <laughs> both have has, have these minuses next to them which is it's hard it's it's never easy because when you start working with graphics it feels easy at first but then you slowly when you go into it you will find yourself thinking about things that you never knew existed. 
And, uh, and well, and, and a lot of times there's a, you know, the things that are easy, there are definitely ones that are easy to get into, um, but they are then limited. You know, they're limited. They're kind of a, you know, I think that HDR, H2R graphics works really well for a lot of people because you just turn it on and it just works. Um, but the amount of flexibility that you might have is a little lower because it's, it's, it's a safe sandbox to kind of, to work inside of, but it's super effective for the, for the folks that, that just want to turn something on and have it work almost immediately. Right. So I think there's a balance between uh, complexity and uh, simplicity. <laughs> and, yeah. and uh, you know, there's, there's always a sort of like a fixed amount of complexity. It just depends whose seat it lands to. <laughs> so, and, and, and to be clear, like when you're talking about HTML, again, we use Casper because we want key fill out. We have old fashioned right. hardware and everything else. But there are a lot of software like TriCasters, OBS, vMix, um, you know, uh, many of those, many uh, other ones that are, that just take an HTML page with the alpha channel, right? HTML5 and just can composite over. Is that correct? That is correct. So, and the list of those applications is constantly growing because right. uh, people who are making these, uh, these systems, software and hardware devices, they have noticed the the capabilities of HTML and more powerful computers. So it, you don't need to have something which is dedicated to rendering, uh, you know, somewhere on the side. You can you can embed some of that rendering capabilities into your system. So it, it simplifies the systems and make them make them sort of like more approachable. And and the uh, and you also have incorporated SPX into Zoom. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. That that is sort of like. Uh, we have worked with the SPX, the, the desktop application, uh, for about two and a half years now, and uh, and uh, the past year we have been developing SPX graphics for Zoom, and it's out right now. And actually, actually, I'm go I'm going to show it to you later on. Uh, but yes, so that's a it's using the same same templates. The mm -hmm. user interface is a sort of like simplified version of it, but it right. runs entirely in the Zoom client. That's great. I think we're going to jump. To, we're going to come back to some more discussion, but we're going to go ahead and answer a couple questions. Uh, we've got questions stacking up. I want to make sure we get to them. Uh, so let's go ahead and jump into the first question. First one, John Foltz from Ceilings Grove, Pennsylvania, asking: We all have uh, Macs, no PCs. I heard Mark Gilbert's Graphic Engine app outputs SPX to a deck link with key and fill. Does this work? Are there other options for us Mac folks? I think he's referring to Sienna workflow, which is a cloud-based uh, system. I'm not absolutely sure, but I think that's what he's referring to. And I don't know details about it, but I know for a fact that the uh, Sienna system has a component or a module called uh, CG Engine, which can take in uh, HTML graphics like SPX. And I'm pretty sure that somewhere in, in their library of modules, they have an SDI auto module for decklings. But I'm not absolutely sure, but I think that's the case. Next question. I have a question for you, Tuomo. Is there a method that allows you to get Zoom chat on screen as a lower third? That's a good question. Uh, we don't have anything uh, off the shelf right now. We do have... Uh, workflows for showing other types of community content on screen, but nothing that has been integrated with Zoom chat yet. <laughs> but uh, when we are talking about the, the Zoom, the SPX graphics for Zoom uh, application within Zoom, that is something that we are working on. Next question. From Morgan Price in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. 
For those using OBS for SPX output, I tested key fillout to deck link on OBS 29.1.3 for SPX to ATM. It appears to work again on my Mac. It's been broken since version 28. <laughs> Yay. Probably, probably be broken by 30 again. So anyway, uh, so OBS on the Mac, not, not my friend. Uh, next, next question. From Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. Can SBX pick up social platform like YouTube, LinkedIn, etc., uh, and the chat display it in an easy fashion for live streaming? Hmm, that's a complex complex question because uh, like uh, somebody already mentioned here that uh, YouTube Live is a different thing than a YouTube clip, for instance. And uh, the YouTube chat, when it comes to uh, recorded clips, is different than the live chat in YouTube. So uh, it depends. <laughs> yeah, it's, so, yeah, the... the YouTube's chat, the access to it requires a series of to a token system that is brutal. Like just, it, it almost feels like they don't want you to do it. <laughs> so, so like, you know, like we, like we will let you, but, and, and there are some companies that have kind of worked through the gauntlet to, to get, to get that to work a little bit more effectively. Um, the other thing I would say is that I don't know, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Um, the amount of junk that goes into a chat uh, into a yeah. YouTube chat or a Twitch chat um, is really a distraction and oftentimes can turn off your entire viewership because of what people are putting in the chat. Uh, I would never right. want to take a raw feed I, from from YouTube and put it into into my show because once you do it and people see it, people will troll you. Yeah, they will. They absolutely they will. Uh, and I and I feel the same way that that that's the reason why SPX Social is our our tool for doing this stuff. And the the workflow there is that you you have an incoming feed and then you publish your selected message from it. So it's not a direct pipe from that social source into your live stream. So there's actually a you will need to click a button for that to appear. And it makes more sense quite often because people might have questions and you want to post the flow of incoming messages while you are discussing that topic. So it makes sense to have some kind of a moderation uh, yeah. in front of it. Absolutely. Next question. Next question from Morgan Price in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. What do you recommend for designing motions and animations for SPX templates, as well as what you do for using fancy animations to use an SPX? Great question and super difficult to answer because uh, it depends. So uh, there are like, if you're working with the proprietary system, then you have that proprietary design interface to, to work with. But when you're working with HTML, you have a huge variety of different techniques to utilize in your templates. So you can, you can create items in After Effects and export those out as vector graphics. So you are not limited just to pixels. So you can create animations which are vectors in vectors in After Effects, and you can export those out, and you can embed those into templates in, in SPX. So that's one approach. But there's like 15 different types of approaches. I'm going to show two of those later today. No, you can go ahead and show them now if you like. It's connected to the to the image. If you have okay, that all right. So... Uh, yeah, put well, them on, putting Twilo right. on the griddle. <laughs> okay, so let's let's do this. So I have this kind of a setup here. So on the left hand side, I have HTML, raw HTML. It, it looks, I mean, I know you're scared now, <laughs> but let, let me walk you through it. So I'm, I'm going to take it easy. So I'm going to go through a sequence of iterations. And this is where we, we start with. So we have HTML 
file here. This page here is a renderer. So this there's a live connection here. So if I make a change here, I add something here and I save it, you can see if I scale it up that we have these exclamation points here, right? So this page is now connected to this output. And uh, uh, so HTML language is just a text file. You can, you, can, you can edit it on a notepad, but please don't. Use something more, you know, useful. It's horrible. Uh, so what, I, what I'm using here is Visual Studio Code, which is a code editor, and it allows me to do things like this. So I can, I can um, collapse sections from my code. So if I don't want to see a section, I want to concentrate on something, I can collapse these other sections. And now we can see that HTML file starts here. It has these brackets and a slash HTML, which, which is an ending tag. So everything is between these two tags. And we have two things within those tags. We have a head and we have a body. And let's not worry about the head for now. Let's focus on the body. So in the body, we have a div. <laughs> and if I, if I take this out momentarily, and I want to show something on my screen here, just to explain what's going on. Uh, one second, when I find it, here we go. So the HTML tags look something like this. So we have some kind of a name. The HTML uh, specification comes with a bunch of elements. We have a div, we have a span, we have h1, h2, like headers. But in SPX templates, we just use divs. We don't care about anything else. It's like a building block. You can call that a building block. <laughs> and, and it has a content. So here we have the string, which is in white, it's its first name. That's the content which gets rendered onto the page. And then we have a class. Class is a concept uh, re which relates to CSS. You have heard about CSS, cascading style sheets, which means that you can have your classes. You can come up with a class name. It can be anything. And then you can start to add properties to that class, like a so font style or So you size. don't have to keep on defining what first name is going to look like. You're going to have, this is the class is, this is how I want, anytime I say that, I want it to look like this. And then, then you're going to give it the data. Correct. So several, several elements on the page can have a single, can have the same class. Like if you are making a sort of like a grid, let's say a checkerboard, Every other uh, box in on that checkerboard will have a black background, and every other is going to have a white background. So then, every other item you would have your black class, white class, black class, and so on. And the ID is a unique identifier of an element, right? So now we have a style, and we have a name for it, an ID, and we can reference that element by an ID. So we can we can programmatically we can send content to that specific element because we know its id right makes sense yeah all right so let's go back to here and uh, so now we have these divs in here and let i have off screen here i have sort of like a adva more advanced version of this same thing so you don't need to watch me type this stuff in so i'm slowly going to uh, make this better so now i just pasted some stuff into it now, if I save it, uh, let me scale this down a little bit. All right. So now what, what I did is that I added 
a bunch of styles. So to, now we have a section in this document called a style. So remember, we have the body and we have the, the head. And now within the head, there is another section called style. And in the style, we have elements. So body is the, the basic, it's sort of like the background of your HTML document. If there's nothing else in there, there's always going to be body. That is sort of like a built-in thing in the browser. And now we can set some properties to it. Like we can set a margin, padding. Padding is the thing within the element. <laughs> margin is outside of the element. We have a height. Then we have a thing called display. I'm not going to go through all of these, but you understand slowly what, what I'm doing here. I have a font size. All right, so this is interesting. So if I change that to three or four and save, the text gets got bigger. If I make it smaller, the text got smaller, right? And then we have font families, like we can add any font file, what you have installed into your system, and it will know to render this item with that specific font. All right, let's move on. Uh, so let's save. And all right, now if I keep on resaving, you will see that there's no text and it fades on. So it nothing fades on, nothing fades on. So what's going on in here? So I added a new uh, style setting for a div. And remember, we have two divs down here. So now we have opacity zero, which means that it's invisible. Its transparency is 100%. <laughs> so its opacity is zero, right? And then we have a couple of animation properties, animation delay. So if I put five seconds in here and I make the animation super slow, I'm going to make it five seconds and I'm going to save. So this gets rendered. So now it fades on gradually over the course of five seconds. And the way it works is that I can, I can assign an animation to my object. And this animation has a name, fade in, and it has this kind of a syntax here for creating keyframes. So and how do you know? And fade in is a is something that's built into the animation. So you there's a is there a there's a lot of different animations that are available. No, and how do you know where this, this is a name that I came up with? So I can I can I can I can just give it this like in. Let's call it in. So this animation here is now called in. All right. Right. But this animation is now assigned to this property, to right. this to this object this element and these keyframes in here, it goes from to. So it's super, super easy to understand what it does. Right. So it goes from zero opacity to one, uh, to opacity of one right. over the course of five seconds. And if I save it, you will see that it starts to fade on. All right. So now we know how to, how to animate stuff. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, Couple of more steps and we are done. Now, now you're, we're writing code here, but if you use something like Lupic, you would be able to have it generate that for you, and then it will just give you that code, right? And then, but you could still go into it and dig in and do more, right? Uh, well, I wish that was kind the of. case. So kind of, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because what it does, it gives you this code, but it gives you that in a way which is not human editable. Uh, so it is editable, but it's super difficult to figure out what's where. Because right. it gets minified. That's the term used. Right. 
Okay, so we have the next step and I'm going to walk you through it. So, all right. So now it our graphic looks like this. So we have colors, we have boxes. So what's going on? So I just introduced classes. Remember my explanation that we have classes and, and elements. So now we have two elements. We have the div, which has a class main, and we have a another div, which has a class sub. And these are names which I came up with. It could be anything, but I just gave these names to it. Right. And here in our style section, we have the div, what we had before. We had the animation we had before, but we have these new definitions. We have a main class because it has this little dot in front of it. That means that this is a class definition. And all right. So now we can start to modify this stuff. So if I make it bigger and save, it got bigger. And if I make it smaller, it gets smaller, so we are connected, right? We have other properties here. We have a color, which means the font color. And then we have a background color, which means background color. <laughs> Padding is a thing which uh, which lives inside. That, that keeps of, the spacing on either side, right? Or, yeah. or the top and bottom either in either side, how much of that graphic, how much of that background exists? Exactly. Yes. So if we want to make it, we want to uh, give it more padding vertically. So we have two properties here or two values. We have the vertical value and a horizontal value. So if I make the vertical one, let's say 0.5. So now it grew vertically. And if I increase the size of it horizontally, we know what it's going to do, right? We can also introduce other stuff here. So let's throw something quickly here, border radius, and I'm going to give it like, uh, let's give it one EM. EM, in case you were wondering, is a width of an M character. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Is that is that when you say EM? Is it the width of the M character, and is that dependent on which font you're using? Is, yeah, is, the it, current, it is. With the current the, in the current the context. Width of the M. That's funny. Right, it's the width of a of a lowercase M. Right, <laughs> right, and then the 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 sub. So we have the same, similar kind of settings. All right, moving on. So now we are going to change it slightly. So I'm going to introduce a concept called uh, absolute positioning. Because what we had before, we had uh, uh, relative positioning, which is on by default. So things follow each other, but we can override it. Uh, let's collapse this one because we have seen these already. We have seen, well, let's take a look at the main one because now it has more properties. It has, uh, it has absolute positioning. Right. And once we have an absolute positioning, it means it flows freely on the page. So we can put it wherever. Right. And now we have we can take a look at we have these properties here like left and top. So if I decrease the left property to half of it, like 25 pixels, the element moves left. And if I increase it to the 75, it moves to the right. Makes sense. Right? Yeah. And the same thing goes with the, the sub uh, subtext or the second line. So we have these kind of properties as well. Mm -hmm. So we have absolute positioning and we can give it these val values. Let's, 
I want to take a quick break and and uh, answer a couple more questions here. I know that we're kind of cutting in the middle of it. I want to make sure we get to the questions before we before we run out of it. But that's um. But what it does do is I think that for the folks that are doing that do HTML. This is exciting for the folks that don't do HTML, like, oh, no, what have I got myself into? So, um, but I think that the, the, the key is, is that there are so many HTML folks that are out there um, that can do this. That's the big thing is all the things that you're showing are standard HTML, uh, you know, properties, you know, that, that you would use. And no one, if you're doing HTML development, the great thing about this is that you don't have to learn anything new. Um, uh, let's go to the, first, the next question. From Jonas Dattel from Stuttgart, Germany, can SPX also be run in the cloud? Uh, it can. Several people are doing it. Uh, we currently don't uh, sort of like have a SaaS version, a software as a service kind of a product. But we will help you if you want to do it. And we can, we can tell how other people are doing it. And quite often they they just have SPX running in a cloud someplace and they they set up their own HTTPS settings and you know virtual tunnels right. and whatever they they need to have in their production. So it totally can work. It's just it's not it's not something that's turnkey, but it's something that it's just a PC with a web page. You know what I mean? Like yeah, you know, it's it can it can be managed that way. Right. Uh, yeah. Next question. Matthias Utila from Helsinki, Finland asks. What is the best way for novice to learn how to modify built-in graphics and SPX? I mean, HTML, CSS files, when exa for example, when you want to change the font color, shapes, movement, etc. Any ready-made guides or need to learn the basics of HTML? Yeah, so we, we try to give out all of our templates since we have a store. You can download our example templates from the store. And those have not been minified or or uglified, so the full source code is there. You can just take take it down, start modifying it slowly, working your way through the HTML files. We are constantly creating new tutorials, also written tutorials and uh, video based tutorials to help people out in in their journey. Next question. John Foltz from Sealings Grove, Pennsylvania, has a question. Is it possible to include a photo in an SPX template where you enter the text of the image in the template? For example, to include a photo of a person on a lower third. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> so, now, and, and can that can that template? It's a still. Can that be video as well? Can it play out video or or insert a live video feed into that into that image? Um, it can be done, uh, but it, it uh, you will need to figure out where is the video coming from, where do you host it, right. uh, but it can be done. So oftentimes it might be better for that to pop open and that's a hole for a standard video switcher to insert a video into, as opposed to it, SPX running that on its own. Uh, Correct, go ahead, yes. Go ahead, Courtney. And does it support an animated GIF in that format? Could you use that for animation? Absolutely, you can. It's actually quite powerful to, to do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Uh, next question. Next question from Lenny Nelson in San Antonio, Texas. Can you get local data, like from a scoreboard to the cloud, for integration into the graphics? Yes. So I, later today, if I have the time, I will, I will show a couple of these examples using scoreboards and external data like Google Sheets, uh, Excel files, and, and so on. And this this might be a good time to show it. If you want to go ahead and show it, um, all right, with let's this, do it. Then go ahead and throw it in. 
Right. So what I haven't shown yet is the user interface of SPX. <laughs> so, so let's do it at the same time. So I'm just going to throw it in here. And here I have the SPX running uh, locally on my PC here. Uh, and I, I have these, I have, I have projects and I have rundowns in the project. So let me go quickly to these uh, examples that I, that I, uh, prepared for this, uh, presentation. So this is a runtime, uh, rundown. And on this rundown, we have a bunch of uh, templates and the plus button down here is a template browser. So I can go through my installed templates and I can add to my rundown. And once I have a template on the rundown, then I can start making changes to them. So if I take something super basic here, like let's take uh, this one. So it's a name strap. So if I double click, the template opens up for editing. So now I can, I can, I can type in anything in here. Once I click enter or click the save button, I can then replay the item and it's going to have that content in it, right? So if I now go and I change to another rundown, which has these data-driven examples, like let's take this one. So this content uh, is an actual production work that we did for a network. And the content here comes from, uh, from a Google Sheet. Uh, and then they have two other uh, data-driven tickers. So if I now show it on my face here, you will see it more clearly. Uh, so we, we have these tickers going on in here and they are fetching data from external data sources. And the way these work is that I can remove the bottom one. There are three different templates here and they are on three different SPX layers and they are aware of each other's state. So if I take out the top, the bottom one, the two other ones, they drop down. And if I reintroduce the news, news item one, the other two are gonna uh, move away from it. And this is called a transition logic. So, but here you have an example of using, using just Google Sheets. And in here, actually, there's the URL for that Google Sheet. I'm not going to show and it. And how to does you it guys, know but... <laughs> when it's when it's grabbing that? How is it going from one cell to the next as it as it puts right. that together? Right. So that's uh, that's something which gets uh, uh, developed into the template itself. So, like in this instance, if I show it for the second time here, we have the names of the tabs. So right. news, business, sports. So it knows that I I want to go through these tabs. And the way we develop these, these Google Sheet documents that each line has a checkbox next to it. The checkbox signifies that this is safe to air. So it has been fact-checked, it has been approved, it has been completed, because when you're working with cloud-based <laughs> documents, you don't know if somebody else is modifying it while it's being loaded. <laughs> so, so that's why, that's right. the way we do it. No, absolutely. Mitchell, you want to add something to that? Yeah, I was just curious, when it's consuming that data uh, to include in there, uh, does it have to be on a server? Can it be on a local? Can it be in the form of an XML or a JSON or the typical HTML rules apply? Right, it can. So we, in SPX, we have uh, native support for XML, JSON, Excel files. Then we have templates, which can do other, other things like loading Google Sheets, Google Slides, uh, a ton of file formats and in our social we have social is a plugin for spx and that supports even more file formats and usually those 
uh, file formats are used through plugins. So SPX can support plugins. So we can develop, if you have a, you know some kind of a proprietary data source or a device or a system, we can create a plugin which can tap into your system and can feed data to SPX. So you could have a SQL uh, plugin that allows you to use SQL or whatever data source. Correct. Good, Chris. Yeah, uh, we know all too well that sometimes you can get a data link fail, as as you <laughs> know, Twomo. Um, I, I I just wanted to this is slightly off topic, but w- we got to work with Twomo doing John's rocket launch, and it was and it was so much fun because I I contacted him. And I said, Twomo, this is what I'd like you to do. I want you to just absolutely be the executive producer of anything graphical. Like, figure out what you can do. Figure out what data. And, and it, was, it was so interesting, Tuomo, because he, he kept wanting to say, well, well, how would you like it to look? I go, I want you to decide. Like, do everything that you always wanted to do or weren't allowed to do, but just own it. And I'll tell you that from a, a director's point of view, it was so cool to just absolutely give it up. You're laughing. Why are you laughing at me, Tuomo? No, um, I'm, to, I'm to, enjoying to, this. Come on. It, it was great. <laughs> and and he just like absolutely took the ball. And, and he kept calling me back and saying, so what do you think of this or this? I said, you decide. Like literally just own it. Yeah. And to see... How and you know he was doing this. He was pulling data in from other places because we had all kinds of telemetry coming in, and he was bringing in data from chat stuff. And I don't even know how he was doing it, but it was the way this works. And I'll say, like Alex, you and I are somewhat similar. We're used to you know, like give me a piece of hardware, give me a key, give me a fill, patch it in, done. And to see this HTML thing work, the first time I realized what was going on, it's like. You mean it's just pulling from an HTML page? Yeah. I was like, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and, like, like, well, and, and, and again, you know, the, what, you're, what you're seeing is a more complex version of that with uh, office hours. So the lower third that you see right now below me, um, that is, so what's crazy for us is that because we, because Mukana sits in the web and, and uh, SPX is in the web, they're handing that data back and forth. So the questions that you see roll up that's live when someone, you know, when someone hits uh, in universe hits put in the put in the uh, question, they don't have to figure out where the question is. They're not cutting and pasting something. They're not figuring it out. Uh, you know, Makana is delivering that data to SPX. SPX rolls that up in real time. Uh, it knows we have a little thing in in the back end where we put a number in Zoom so that we know who everybody is. You can put whatever you want inside of our inside of what we're in as the panel. And it just says, but it knows who's live. And so when that lower third pops up, it just, it's, it, all of that's programmatic and all of that's dynamic um, based on what we're doing, which is uh, really powerful. Um, next question. Next question in from Peter Belbin. And the question is the most recent release of SPX XPS uh, appears to have been 1.1.2, June 20th, 2022. Can we have an update as to when we might see the next update available, please? An update to the update. <laughs> <sighs> right. Thanks, Peter. Uh, <laughs> so uh, what I'm running here on my machine is 1.1.4. So there are versions later than that, uh, but they haven't been publicly released because there are little glitches here and there. And uh, 
since we have focused on the Zoom app and it has taken quite a lot of our resources and customer work, so the updates are lagging behind, but they will surely come. And there are two events in the in the year which forces us to make these uh, new updates. Uh, IBC in the September and uh, NAB in, what is it, late March, early April. So before IBC, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. And here's one from Douglas Carmichael. Would there be any WYSIWYG HTML editors that work with SPX? I think that could be very useful for those that are less web savvy. Yes, uh, there's one. Uh, uh, let me type it in here and show it to you. This one, lubic.io. So that has a support for SPX templates natively. So when you create your animation in, in Lupic, there's a little button which is export to SPX and it, it will prompt you for your SPX installation folder and it will download the template there and it's ready to ready for play out right away. That's great. Uh, next question. Jonas Dattel from Stuttgart, Germany. Do you see a way forward for HTML-based graphics to work in 10-bit? <laughs> Uh, I wish I had something to control that, <laughs> but uh, I think it, it will come at one point. But this is something that the browser vendors will need to figure out. Next question. Matthias Utila from Helsinki, Finland asks, what are the ways to automatically scrape or add text information in graphics and SPX? Can text info be in graphics automatically updated from local files? What keeps updating? Right. So there are several ways of, of doing that. Uh, I would like to show uh, our API. So SPX comes with an API. Like what Alex mentioned here is that the Mukana is, is pushing content to SPX and it's rendering it out. Uh, that system is built uh, on top of that API. So uh, in SPX, there is, a, let me show you. So if you go into, into your SPX uh, and you change the URL of like I have it running in localhost. So if I just add API slash v1. So and it's going to give you this page. And on this page, there are different uh, endpoints uh, methods that you can you can send from your external app. And this is one approach how to do uh, these kind of integrations that your external application is is pushing content to, uh, to SPX. Another approach is to use uh, timers within templates. So you might load up a template and you can create the timer within that template, which fetches data from, from your external data source. And that's another way to do it. Next question. Arshid Trivedi from Daytona Beach, Florida asks, what can I take back with me on this upcoming Saturday and beyond with relation to accessibility? What type of accessibility would you like to highlight regarding SPX, please? That's a tricky question because uh, accessibility is something that our customers are constantly trying to do when, when using graphics and doing video workflows. But that is something that we really haven't done ourselves. We have created tools for other people to do things like live subtitling in video production, in live events and stuff like that. But when it comes to the actual application in itself, the only thing that I can say is that by using this API, you can create uh, external controllers like Stream Deck 
which you can use to trigger graphics from SPX. So maybe that will help. Next question. JJ McKenna from Santa Venetia, California asking, you gave us an example of pulling data from Google Sheets. Is it possible to trigger events on a timer or time of day event? Yeah, it, uh, the, the thing in development always is that you have a process which is waiting for a trigger. <laughs> so, so you will need to come up with a trigger. The trigger can be a timed one. So you can, you can create a, a, an application, which is a process, which triggers another process. So by doing timers, then you can, you can create workflows like these. Good, Courtney. And if you're using Google Sheets, do you have it uh, tied or do you enable the ability to automatically update if it sees that field change on the Google Sheet? Otherwise, if it hasn't changed, it leaves it the same. Yeah, once again, that is a that is a thing which needs to be figured out while developing the template. Since uh, I don't think Google Sheets API or uh, Google Apps Script API will allow uh, push notifications. So right. you will need to pull the information from the Google Sheets and you will need to build in the business logic uh, to take care, sort of like comparing diff, making a diff basically between the Compared original, to the previous version. If it's right. different, then update yes. the screen. And, and yeah. yes, and if it's different, then it's going to create some kind of animation to flag that that content had changed. Right. So trigger an animation on change, right? Yes. Next question, Douglas Carmichael. In the Office Hours 2.0 workflow, the technical director triggers the graphics from their universe page and there is no graphics operator, could we conceivably split those roles if we created a separate universe page and crew position? Yeah, there'd be no reason why we can't. I mean, these are all just calls, so that we could definitely um, separate uh, separate those out. Um, one of the things that is in the, in the production pr process is we kind of want to combine them so that one person could run something and be able to separate them out so that lots of people can run them. And the great thing about a lot of these interfaces is that they... They're all just making their own individual calls. Uh, next question. I have a question for you, Tuomo. Uh, what new CSS or HTML feature that are coming that you are most interested in? That's a good question. I, I really don't have a good answer for it. Uh, the issue there really is that uh, even though we on our desktop applications, we might have the latest and greatest features what the browsers will give you like blur blur is one of those things that depending on your uh, browser version your switcher which has that browser embedded into it may not have it yet so we will need to be a little bit behind when it comes to the latest features but there are uh, there are things like uh, which is not really css or html but there's there's this uh, technology called uh, web assembly which is basically like C-level applications, the speed of C applications running in a browser. So that is something which will enable all kinds of interesting animation uh, features. Next question. And it's from Douglas Carmichael. How do you create custom data-driven on-screen widgets with SPX? Uh, well, you just sit down and take out, take your code editor and start typing. And uh, <laughs> that's the way it all starts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But uh, in reality, we we have 
couple of uh, extensions which are which you can get from our store and you can use those as a starting point and uh, in our discord channel some people have uh, shared some of their work and but it's it's really comes down to the fact that you will need to start just learning the basic concepts of SPX, its layers, projects, uh, file structures, communication mechanisms between the controller and the renderer. And that gets into like, so what's your business model? This is an open source um, <laughs> thing. So how do you how do you actually make a living doing this? It's pretty hard. <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, uh, in actuality, we are doing custom work for our clients. So, so, we, so while anybody can use this and anyone can build it, yeah. At some point, you, the, the calculation is there's people that will just go, "Hey, let's just get an expert to come here and make this exactly. make this work." Yeah. And and we are we are not jealous at at all. When we are creating uh, templates or custom workflows for our customers, we give them the source code. They can they can run with it and they can do whatever they wish with it. And uh, that is pretty much the model that we are trying to achieve here. That we have a store which you, people can support us by buying some templates they can uh, and they can uh, get you know us to work on a creative uh, services projects that's uh, that's the biggest one at the moment but really what our target is is to turn our store into a marketplace where mm -hmm. we will have a big roster of developers designers supplying content for uh, businesses all around the world currently we have a uh, little over 8,000 users in every single time zone. And and we get requests from all of these time zones daily. So there's there's a bunch of stuff going on. Some of them are actual paid projects. And and how is it protected? So if someone, if you buy something from the store, is it registered to you? Is it, some, it seems like if it's just, if it's just the code, someone could theoretically cut and paste it, or is there some way that it's protected? Some of the code, well, mostly it's license based. So we have a, a mm -hmm. license for these these items that when you when you get a, a freebie from our uh, store, it comes with a readme file which has a link to a license, and uh, and uh, that basically tells us that you can share this with anybody. You can do whatever you wish with it. You can sell it, uh, you know, to your neighbor or whatever. We don't care uh, if it's if it if it leaves from our side as a freebie, then you are free to do whatever you want with it. If if it's a paid uh item then it has a little bit of uh sort of like legal limitations what you can do with it you can distribute it within your organization but you cannot give it out to external people it's it works roughly the same way as you as you deal with fonts so right. you buy a license you use it but it's up to you to really uh, respect the license next question robin cutshaw from atlanta georgia has a question what is the relationship between Casper CG and SPX? Excellent question. So, so Casper CG is a is a free uh, is an open source video server uh, which can play video clips and uh, it can support uh, decklink cards and NDI and all these things and it supports HTML graphics and we really don't have any kind of a relationship. It's just the fact that SPX has an integration to Casper CG, uh, uh, so. SPX has a native support for Casper CG's proprietary uh, communication protocol called AC, ACPM, MP, something like that. Yeah. yeah. Next, uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael, have you ever seen Tumult's hype for Mac OS? Could it also be used to create SPX graphics? 
I have seen it absolutely, but I really haven't tried it myself since I, uh, I'm not using macOS myself. But I'm super curious about it and I would like to take it for a spin. Next question. Eduardo Augustine from Panama. When will we streamline the API and platform to create customer templates for the marketplace? Uh, we have an internal target that the marketplace should be up by the end of this year. And that means that we will need to have a multi-vendor marketplace platform in place. We will need to have SDKs for external developers so they have access to sample code and our documentation and everything. So that is going to streamline kind of quite a lot, quite a lot of this process. And the API within SPX is being improved in every version. In the next version, the, the biggest uh, uh, change into the API will be an introduction of an API key, so you can you can protect your uh, API uh, your SPX server a little bit more. I know we didn't get to everything, Tuomo, but that was great. <laughs> really, really good. Uh, great hour. We're you know we're really. Uh, we We've really loved working with SPX uh, over the last little bit of time, and we look forward to what we're going to do in the future with SPX. I know we're looking um, from a uh, both Makana perspective as well as office hours of the next generation of what we're doing together. So um, we're really excited to have you on. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It was great. Um, and oh, can you tell us real quickly, where do, you, where do people find that Discord for SPX? What's the... Uh, oh, what's it called? Right. Uh, yes, uh, it's... a. Uh, bit.ly slash join SPX. Perfect. There we go. So definitely check that out if you're interested in more uh, following SPX. And uh, we'll, we'll have Tuomo back on. Uh, maybe even break down some of the stuff we're doing uh, within office hours directly uh, just to show how all those things work because it's really, really powerful. Um, and uh, again, it was something that was very foreign to us when we started and now it's all become totally embedded into what everything we do. Uh, we traveled um, 110,000 miles, 177,000 kilometers today. And that's 873 million bananas for scale. Um, I want to thank uh, the producers for all the great questions, keeping this uh, moving forward. Um, it's just, you know, this is your show. <laughs> so if you ask great questions, you have a great show. And uh, you did ask great questions today. So thank you so much for that. Uh, thanks to the panelists uh, for making this all happen. We can't, we also can't do this. If there's no one to answer the questions, it's a, if a, if a question is asked and no one, no one's there to answer it, does it, does it exist? And, and the panelists make it exist and, and bring it out to everyone. And thanks to the incredible team, including Tuomo, uh, that uh, helps put on uh, and make uh, uh, office hours happen. Uh, you know, this is a huge team of, of people putting together the graphics, the, the processes, the uh, planning these events and figuring out who's going to talk next, uh, writing me a little overview of, of what's going to happen in the show. All of those things are happening on the back end, and we just really appreciate the entire team that puts this together. So thank you for your contribution. All right, let's go ahead and jump into After Hours. That was good. Good stuff. Can't write an automated script and throw in the uh, claw lock traversal. I know, I know. We have That's to a low That's a new SPX little project that we have to do is to get the Tuomo traversal put in there. That would be, uh, uh, there's got to be some data there. We, we have to figure out what it looks like. Rotating globe, bananas circling it. Thank you, Tuomo. Explosions, explosions. Thank you. We will need to have a, a particle emitter throwing out these bananas for scale. Yes. Bam. And you get a banana 